You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Become a subscriber and support Radical Radio. Call 03-9419-8377 or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction In the fields of bodies burning As the war machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Well, well, well. Karina, the world's greatest producer. Somebody rang me and told me, why do you call her the second greatest producer in the world? That's irony. Obviously, if she wasn't the world's greatest producer, I wouldn't have called her that. Now, Anarchy, no, it's not about Karina. It's not about production. It's not about Community Radio 3CR, which is the station from which this broadcast is coming to you across Australia via the Community Radio Network. It's not about myself, Joseph Toscano. It's all about anarchos, creating a society without rulers, what gives rulers the ability to determine the lives of billions of people, to sacrifice them on the killing fields for God, king and country. Very simple. Inequalities in power and wealth. So the anarchist struggle, the struggle to devolve power, share power and the struggle to hold wealth in common. Now, obviously, if you're a regular listener to the Anarchist World this week, you may find that sometimes the topics come back. And that's what happens in life. Because the interesting thing about living in a capitalist society, a private investment for private profit society, we never seem to be able to deal with most things, especially when it comes to questions of inequality and questions of power. Now, I had to laugh. I really had to laugh last week, late last week. And I'll tell you why. Now, you all know about the privatisation fiasco surrounding aged care and early childhood development. Obviously, uh, previous governments, both uh, Labor and the Liberal National Party, have really been pushing the privatisation agenda. The recently retired uh, Victorian Premier was a, a real expert at pushing the privatisation agenda. Uh, but what I heard last week was enough to make a growing human being cry, even children cry. Now, currently... As I've said before, corporate welfare is one of the biggest issues we face in this country. It's not about Social Security beneficiaries. 
and the robo-debt fiasco. It's about corporate welfare, the amount of direct and indirect support which is given to the corporate sector at the expense of wage earners as well as most small and micro businesses. That's what we forget. Now, what happens when you privatise a particular area of human need? You add a third part to the addition table. You need to make a profit for the owner or the shareholders who own the company who own that business. And theoretically, theoretically, you make that profit by squeezing your consumers, don't feed them that much in aged care facilities, and squeezing your staff. Now, when you privatise essential services and allow the corporate sector to handle those essential services, the government and the people of the country become hostages to those corporations. Because what happens is, initially you may have a large number of businesses which are competing against each other to provide those essential services, but in three to four years you see that three or four major corporations dominate that field of human industry. Aged care and early childhood development are classical examples. So what you see is these corporations having a super highway to the Federal Treasury. Because the Federal Treasury, instead of running, in the Australian government, instead of running its own aged care sector, it outsources it to the public, to the private sector. Now that private sector needs to make a profit. And it makes a profit, as we know, through government subsidies. Government pays subsidies, say to parents, for early childhood development care. And that subsidy then goes to the private sector and the individuals using early childhood care then have to top up, you know, to augment the company's profit. But we have gone one step further in the corporate gravy train. We've added an extra carriage to the corporate gravy train, to the superhighway to the Federal Treasury. And uh, late last week, I was listening to a representative from the early childhood development field. I think he represented a company that employs about 10,000 workers in that field. So it's, it's a dominant player. And I was listening to representatives of the workers and I thought I was hallucinating because both were agreeing that early childhood development workers needed wage rises and better conditions at work. And I thought, what? What's going on here? This is unbelievable. A bit of cooperation. We're forming a, a collective sector in the, in the early childhood development area. And I thought, this is wonderful. And then the penny dropped. Now, although the corporations that dominate the early childhood development sector 
agreed that their workers needed a wage rise, guess what? An extra carriage had been added to the gravy train which was hurtling towards the Federal Treasury. They wanted the government, that's you and me, the taxpayer, they wanted the taxpayer to fund the wage rise. So here we have a situation where you have an essential service which was privatised, where the corporations have now dominate that essential service. They can't, they claim they're not making big enough profits for their shareholders through government subsidies um, to parents who need that service, but now they want the government to actually pay for any wage increases to their staff. I'm not making this up. You would think I'm making this up. Now, obviously, we had a similar situation with the aged care sector because of the COVID-19 disaster and the lack of staff. Obviously, the government stepped in and uh, agreed to pay for the wage rise. But now, any corporation that provides an essential service, which has basically been privatised the last 30 to 40 years, now wants the government, which is you and me, the taxpayer, to actually pay for wage increases to their workers so it doesn't decrease their profits, so they can continue to maximise their profits. But this time, it's not just at the expense of their workers and their clients, but it's also at at the expense of the federal government and that's us, the taxpayers. You couldn't write. You could write a musical about this. It, this is just extraordinary. But this is the way things are going in this country. Because privatisation has failed. It has failed miserably. And we are now seeing the same situation occurring in the renewable energy sector, which is not about decentralised energy, which is locally owned, It's about corporations creating centralised energy farms and demanding subsidies from the federal government to the tune of $40 billion as far as renewable energy is concerned. And don't forget the coal industry, the iron ore industry and every other extraction uh, mining sector, the extraction mining sector, has for decades relied on corporate welfare. Corporate welfare in the terms of the fact that they've got licences to mine, the return to the population is almost nothing in terms of royalties and taxes. Almost nothing. It's just an extraordinary situation. And the extraordinary thing is we accept it. We shrug our shoulders and say, yeah, you can't fight City Hall. What's the point? It's all too hard. They privatise the airports, they privatise the ports, they privatise gas, they privatise electricity, they privatise public housing, they privatised aged care, they privatised early childhood development, they privatise public land, giving away to the private sector to build homes and 90% of those homes turn out to be affordable or, you know, 
real estate type thing just goes on and on and on and on. And the fact is that for far too long we've accepted the fact that there is no other way. Listening to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. Now, I'm sure you're all aware there is a referendum on Sunday the 14th. Sorry, my apologies, Saturday. Saturday the 14th of October. And it's about incorporating First Nations people in the Constitution with a voice, a constitutional voice to Parliament. You know, a relatively modest, a very modest um, proposal. And I've been fascinated by the debate regarding this modest proposal. Now, obviously, there's the black sovereign people who don't want to be part of this process. And I respect that decision. But when you look at the no vote, and I'm interested in the people who are voting no currently, it'd be the black sovereign um, movement would be lucky to be 1% of that. Most of the no vote, which has been uh, collected in terms of uh, opinion polls, in terms of why people are voting no, the major reason seems to be that they believe that this will divide us, that's Australians, on the basis of race. Now, I don't want to go into the fact that we divide it on the basis of class and we're divided on the basis of opportunity and we're divided in many different ways. But I really feel it's farcical that the majority of people voting no have swallowed the furphy that this is about race, that it gives one group of people an advantage over another group of people by incorporating a voice to parliament in the Australian Constitution. Now, the reason people wanted a voice to parliament incorporated in the Australian Constitution, they were sick and tired of having um, groups like ATSIC abolished every time a government changed. And they want a little bit of stability, and that stability comes from constitutional inclusion. And you know that I'll be voting yes in the referendum. Now, I'm not telling you how to vote. That's your, that's your business. But I'm really interested in the fact that it will divide us on the basis of race. Now, I understand the black sovereign movement not willing to be part of constitutional arrangements before a treaty. That's their position. But that is a very small minority of the people who are voting no. This referendum is not about race. It's simply about giving the descendants of the original owners of the land, that's right, the descendants of the original owners of the land, the ability to advise Parliament regarding issues which affect them. So it's about property rights. It's like the Mabo decision. 
1992. That was about essentially about property rights. The fact that this country was not based on the concept of terra nullius, the land of no one. So to me, the referendum is about property rights. And it's not about race. And if there's one thing that Australians recognise, it's property rights. So why do referendums matter? Well, as we know, representative democracy is a flawed system. And it's a flawed system in the, because we give parliamentary representatives power to make decisions for us for a three- to four-year period. I could, I could say anything I like. I could promise you anything I like before an election. If I get elected, I can say, ah, oh, well, changed my mind. Sorry. I can leave a particular political party and continue to hold my office. You know, it just goes on and on. I can change my ideas on any policy. And the fact is that real power, as we know, doesn't lie in Parliament. It lies in the boardrooms of unaccountable national and transnational corporations because they set the parliamentary agenda. Because if they didn't set the parliamentary agenda, do you really think we'd have one million children living in poverty in this country in 2023? Of course not. So parliamentary representation is a very, I call it two-cell form of democracy. It's an amoeba. Those of you who remember your science lessons in high school, it's an amoeba. It's not democracy. Democracy is rule of the people, by the people, for the people, and that's why we talk about the devolution of power. You know, And we talk about delegation, and people make decision, decisions, and electing or appointing delegates to carry out that decisions at a local, local, regional, national, and possibly even international level. So referendums are interesting because they change, they give the decision-making power directly to anybody who's on the electoral roll, and that's the key. The decision is not made by parliament. It is made by the Australian people on the electoral roll. So it's a more sophisticated form of democracy where we are being asked to make a decision about a particular topic. There's been, I think, 46, and this will be the 47th referendum, and only nine referendums have passed. And the last referendum we had was in 1999 regarding Australia becoming a republic. And those of you who remember that referendum will notice that in 2023, the push towards a republic is almost non-existent, although Queen Lizzie has gone to God. Okay? And it's the same with the voice referendum. For whatever reason, if it fails, because of this interesting coalition, what will happen is that any momentum towards treaty will disappear, because what government in its right mind would negotiate a treaty with this country's First Nations people when the Australian people as a whole have rejected the minor reform of having a constitutional advisory body from the First Nations population. So it is, an, it is important. Referendums are important because they do set an agenda. 
and especially in Australia, because it's very hard to hold a referendum. First of all, you need a majority in both houses of parliament, and that majority crafts the question. When that question is put to the Australian people, you need a majority in four of the six states, and let's not forget, and you need a majority in the whole of Australia, let's not forget that the ACT and the Northern Territory don't actually have a voice in terms of state representation because they're federal ter territories. They only have the ability to change the result depending on the number of people who vote yes or no. But I think it's a, it's a, it's a mistake to think that a no campaign is going to push reconciliation, treaty, truth-telling to the front of people's minds. Because my experience with most Australians is they're not that interested. They are not that interested. We may be interested. Many Indigenous Australians are interested. But most Australians are, A, not interested, and, two, swayed by arguments that this is a way of dividing us as a country. And let's not forget, we are divided. We are divided in terms of people who've immigrated recently, people who've been here five or six generations, people who've been here 65,000 years. We're divided in terms of income. We're divided in terms of, uh, era in, of class. We're divided in terms of our ability to enjoy the good life because we don't actually have the necessary resources to enjoy that good life. That most Australians, and I'm talking about 80%, sometimes 90%, find most of the day is spent thinking about how they're going to pay their bills. And especially those of us who find ourselves in debt, because debt is the invisible manacle that ties us to the system. It's a little bit like the company store, the old story of the company store where you had to buy at inflated prices at the company store at the end of the year. You found you had no money in your back pocket and you still owed the company store money for basic necessities. The same, it's the same concept. Debt is the same concept. So let's think about it. Referendums are important because they do set political and social agendas. It's a little bit, I'll give you an example which is a little bit extreme. For example, uh, historically the anarchist movement is, doesn't participate in parliamentary elections. I think this is crap philosophy. I participate in parliamentary elections not to be elected to parliament but to raise issues and ideas because my belief is that we use every legal mechanism available to us to put forward our agenda. And it's the same with the uh, voice referendum. Some people vote no because they have a, uh, a mentality that they shouldn't interact with the government of the day because they don't uh, recognise that and I accept that. I accept that position, but most people will vote no through ignorance or 
through the fact that they've been swayed by arguments which really don't come anywhere near to explaining the issue. So let's see what happens in a few weeks' time. Let's move on. Fighting for the crumbs off the corporate table. Yes, my, well, it's not my favourite activity, but it isn't a favourite activity amongst many people. Now, why do we need to fight for the crumbs off the corporate table? Hmm? We've got 25 million people living on a continent full of resources. Educated population. Why are we fighting for crumbs? Why are we paying extraordinary rents? Why isn't there enough housing? Why this, why that? Now, historically, we have been able to divide Australians on the basis of whether they're recent immigrants, whether they're a different colour, whether they speak a different language. And we still have those divisions in our society. We've had those divisions since the beginning of the colonisation process. But you would think in 2023 that we would stop fighting for crumbs off the corporate table. Come on. What's wrong with us as a people? I'm not talking about us individually, but as a people. The fact that we allow a million children to live in poverty, that we allow First Nations people to find themselves in the situation they find themselves because of the colonisation process. That we allow our governments to be drawn in wars that have little or nothing to do with us. It's all about ideology. That we allow all these things to occur. That we allow one third of the population to exist in a a social security benefit which which just barely keeps their head above poverty and especially if they don't own their own homes. And we do this because, to a significant degree, the divisions which exist in this country have been solidified by a social media and a legacy media which continues to push the concept of a private investment for private profit ideology. And all it is, it's an ideology. Privatisation is an ideology. Corporatisation is an ideology. Globalisation is an ideology. Deregulation is an ideology. And the fact is, this ideological cul-de-sac has been a disaster for most Australians. Now, I was speaking to a gentleman, you like that? The word gentleman, who bought a home in the outer Melbourne suburb 21 years ago for $125,000. He sold that same home. Nothing had been done to it. It had actually fallen into disrepair. Obviously, it was bought by a developer for $925,000. That's in the space of eight years. The price of that home had gone up 800%. I'll give you another example with the help of the financial sector, I bought a home in Richmond, that's right, in 1982 
for $42,500. Okay? That's 1982. 35 years later, in 2017, the same home, no alterations, no renovations, had no garden, to, you know, no space, one of these little terrace places, single storey, on a tilt, sold for $1.6 million. That's about 40 times what I originally bought for it. Now, unfortunately, I sold that house four years later to meet debts, all right? Otherwise, I wouldn't be speaking to you here. Now, wouldn't I? I'd be sunning myself in Bermuda or somewhere interesting. But during the same period, wages have gone up about sevenfold. So no wonder in 2023... Our children and grandchildren, to a significant degree, have been locked out of the housing market unless they've got parents who can help them on that journey to put financial manacles on them for the next 40 years. And the great thing about Australian society and the privatisation of housing is the fact that we now have intergenerational mortgages. In the good old days, your parents died, they left you their home, you split it among your siblings after a bit of a battle in the court, and you all got something, you're all happy, and you all went and had a holiday somewhere. Today, you get a mortgage. It's extraordinary. It is extraordinary. But, boys and girls, we do have rivers of diversion. Corporatised sport. I was actually weeping on the weekend, philosophically. Philosophically. Not because my football team lost. I don't actually have a football team. But you've got to pretend sometimes you've got one if you live in Melbourne or Sydney. But I could not believe the passion the real the joy the excitement surrounding corporatized sport in this country especially last weekend with an AFL grand final where 100,026 paid good money to watch two teams throw a ball around and kick a ball around. And on Sunday in Sydney, where I think a similar number, or just about 80,000, watched another football team kick a ball around and uh, run with it. But the passion, the passion, the excitement, the despair if your team lost the grand final, excuse my laughter, not because it's a local sporting event, your local club, but corporatised sport. These are corporations, the AFL, NRL, especially the NRL, half of it's owned by the uh, uh, Murdoch tribe. Corporatised sport, corporatised sport generates so much joy. Maybe it's because we don't have to think. Just watch a ball rolling around. Watch our gladiators. Obviously, it's the old Roman bread and circuses mentality. 
I mean, I've got nothing against sport, but I do detest corporatized sport. And it's never-ending. It's a never-ending diversion from the real world. Maybe we need diversion from the real world because sometimes the real world isn't very pretty. But corporatized sport? I mean, the next big thing will be the uh, lawn tennis in Melbourne, you know? But a grand slam. So why? Why is there such interest in corporatized sports, such joy, such stimulation, such desperation, such excitement, such anticipation? Why don't we have the same joy and anticipation and excitement regarding abolishing child poverty a much more interesting and exciting proposition than actually wasting our money going to some corporatised sporting event I mean sport it comes, it goes it comes the next year and it goes but does it really do anything for anybody, apart from a little bit of temporary excitement and a dull, boring, useless, you know, situation? Hmm? Why don't we have the same passion? And I mentioned this during the Matildas uh, little run. The same passion for social change the same passion to create an egalitarian community, the same passion to ensure that we are involved in the decision-making processes. Because the, the long-term legacy of those struggles far outweighs any temporary joy from your team, in inverted commas, winning some match somewhere. It's not just an Australian issue, but it is particularly acute in Australia. Well, look, we've got a public holiday for a football game. We've got a public holiday. Oh, I forgot about the Melbourne Cup. Naughty boy. I think it's the 8th of November. Hopefully you've all got your tickets. We've got a public holiday for a horse race. But we don't have a public holiday in Victoria for May Day. No. Extraordinary. And the thing is, while we are diverted into these cul-de-sacs, we will continue wasting our energy with our involvement in activities which only give us momentary pleasure. Listening to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. My name is Joseph Toscano. I'm hosting today's program. Messenger RNA. Now, it's not often that I'm, you know, positive. Well, I am always positive, but really positive. Now, I was quite pleased Pleased, excited, elated, 
joyful, you like all those, those words, when we saw some two researchers honoured receive the Nobel Prize for Medicine and Physiology. Catlin Carico, originally from uh, Hungary, now living in the USA, and Drew Wiseman, living in the USA. Now, these were champions of mRNA, messenger RNA. And they were responsible, almost single-handedly, for saving the lives of hundreds of millions of people around the globe over the past three to four years. Because their research revolutionised vaccination. Revolutionised vaccination. And those of you who remember the good old days in 2019 where the bodies were piling up, where we were isolating, you know, and everything had closed down. And look at the situation today of the introduction of vaccination. You can see the difference. And those of you who still think that it doesn't exist, well, think again. Look at the situation in Europe when it first broke out and the bodies piling up, being stuck in refrigerated cars. The list goes on and on. Well done. And you know why it's well done? Because originally when Catalan Cariaco began this journey in the 1980s, she was considered to be a nut, an idiot. It was only when she uh, teamed up with Drew Wiseman, who had his own laboratory and a little bit of cash behind him, was she able to actually continue that research the name of Catalan Cariocco is more important than Jenna or Madame Curie because they have revolutionised vaccine production. Instead of injecting people like Jenna did for hundreds of years we, you know, with small doses or dead bacteria to elicit an immune response, what mRNA does, it actually enters the cell, not the nucleus, and it's only the nucleus that holds DNA. Those of you who think that getting a vaccination is going to change your DNA, it's going to kill billions of people, well, think again. The fact is that if you can get a little bit of protein from the virus, inject it into a cell through vaccination, you create antibodies very quickly. Now, obviously... It's the private sector, that to a significant degree, and a significant degree, Fiz, Fiz, was it Pfizer, whatever they're called, their pharmaceutical giant, have benefited financially. But the fact is that these researchers, if we had a pharmaceutical industry which was government-owned, state-owned, they could have developed this much faster much faster. And the fact that the private sector threw in the money to uh, uh, you know, augment their shareholders' profits is not the fault of Catalina Cariaco 
and Drew Wiseman, but the fact of, but it's the fault of an ideology that considers that essential services are actually privatised. And I must thank Mr. Paul Keating, who's still around, when he privatised, you know, the um, pharma, our, our pharmaceutical industry, the Commonwealth Serum Laboratory, in 1992 for the wonderful price. I think it was about $2.80. They, I think they're at CSL shares now are about $300 a share. But the important thing is, as we learned through the pandemic, that we were totally relying on the private sector to develop, to do the research, develop and produce the material which made us hostages financially to these large pharmaceutical corporations. So, Kathleen Cariaco, Drew Wiseman, congratulations. It's not often... It's not often that people who struggle for decades actually get the acknowledgement that is required. And especially if what you've developed has helped save the lives of hundreds of millions of people. Peter Norman Day. Not as important, obviously, but an important day. Now, Peter Norman Day will be on the 9th of October. That's this Monday. And since 2014, the Peter Norman Commemoration Committee, which I'm a convener of, has been holding a little event on the 9th of October to recognise Peter Norman. So what's all this about? Because obviously most people have forgotten what all this is about. On the 16th of October, 1968, at the Mexico Olympics, that's the bloodied Olympics, that's when the Mexican government shot and killed over 200 students who were protesting during the Olympics. Peter Norman won the silver medal in the 200-metre sprint race in the time of 20.06 seconds. Interestingly, a record that still stands in Australia 55 years later. It's not often you've got a record that lasts for 55 years. Now, obviously, nobody expected him to get anywhere. I think even his coach, Mr Stilho, had doubts that he'd get anywhere, but he came second. So what? So what? Plenty of athletes come second, some even come first. Some bring gold medals, some bring silver medals, some bring bronze medals, which they put in their sock drawer. But Peter Norman, unexpectedly, found himself in, one, in the pivotal moments, one of the pivotal moments of the 20th century. Black athletes in the track and field team in 1967-68 toyed with the idea of boycotting the Mexico Olympics because of the race riots which were, were occurring in the United States, the burning down of cities, the assassination of Martin Luther King. But instead of boycotting the 1968 Olympics, they formed the Olympic Project for Human Rights. 
and the Olympic Project for Human Rights was an organisation which was open to all Olympians. Black, white, pink, yellow, Jew, Christian, atheist, male, female. Didn't matter. Didn't matter. Now, those of you who are alive in 1968 will remember it was quite a tumultuous year. Russia invaded Czechoslovakia because they want a little bit of independence. Not Russia, I should say, the Soviet Union. Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King were assassinated in the United States of America. There were student riots across Europe with the rise of the new left. We had the Vietnam War, which was ramping up. So it was a very, very tumultuous period. And on the eve of the Olympic medal presentation, Tommy Smith, the gold medalist, and John Carlos, the bronze medalist, both Afro-Americans, both members of the Olympic Project for Human Rights, asked Peter Norman, do you believe in human rights? Do you believe in God? When he, when he told them he did, the American told him about their, the Americans told him about their plans to which Peter replied, "I will stand with you." And these are the important words, irrespective of Peter Norman's shortcomings of a human being, and we all have feet of clay, cloven hooves. We all have shortcomings. At that moment in time, he said, I will stand with you. Now, on the way to the Olympic medal presentation, Peter Norman uh, borrowed an Olympic Project for Human Rights badge from the American, the Jewish-American rower Paul Hoffman, which he put on his lapel and wore on the dais. When Tommy Smith and John Carlos gave the human rights salute, he stood there, supporting their stand, really not understanding the consequences. Understanding. Now, Tommy Smith has made it quite clear that this was not a black power salute. This was a human rights salute. It was about human rights for all human beings. They wore no shoes to highlight the poverty of many Americans and they made the salute more to show their disgust with their government. Now, obviously, when Tommy Smith and John Carlos returned to the USA, they were stripped of their medals, they were ostracised, and they were basically totally marginalised. And let's not forget that it was only in 1967, one year previously, that the in a referendum once again that 90% of the Australian people had voted, unlike 2023, had voted to give the Commonwealth Government the power to make legislation for First Nations people because 
Before then, it was only the state governments which had the power, constitutional power, to make legislation. And it was through the passage of that legislation that we saw the growth of the land rights movement and land being given back to many First Nations people in this country. So when Peter Norman returned to Australia, he couldn't believe the reaction. He was ostracised, criticised, wasn't allowed to compete in the 1972 Olympics, although on 13 occasions he had bettered the 200-metre Olympic qualifying time. And to rub salt into the wounds, he was not invited to attend the Sydney Olympics. That's right. Now, when the American track and field event, uh, track and field team found that he had not been invited to the 2000 Olympics by the Australian government, they invited him and he was their personal guest in the Olympic Village. That's the regard he was held in in the year 2000. Peter Norman died on the 3rd of October 2006. Tommy Smith and John Carlos came to Melbourne, came to Coburg and delivered eulogies at his funeral and acted as pallbearers for his coffin. The US Track and Field Federation, not the Australian government, not the Australian athletics authorities, but the US Track and Field Federation realising the personal cost Peter Norman bore throughout his life because of his brave, dignified and moral stand in the struggle for universal human rights, declared the 9th of October, the day of his funeral in 2006, as Peter Norman Day, a day that is celebrated in the United States and almost ignored in this country. In July 2012, the House of Representatives passed a watered-down apology to Peter Norman. In 2014, we formed the Peter Norman Commemoration Committee to bring this issue to the public's intention. In 2018, we held a one-day seminar in Melbourne, which was attended by many people, to discuss this event, and we had uh, presentations, audio presentations from jo John Carlos and Peter Norman on the day. In 2018, the Melbourne City Council, Plaques and Monument Committee refused point blank to support our request to build a monument to mark that moment in Melbourne the home of Peter Norman. In 2019, Neville Stiltoe, Peter Norman's coach in 1968, in his mid-90s, with support from the Athletics Australia, convinced the Victorian government to fund a monument that was unveiled at the entrance to Lakeside Stadium in Melbourne on the 9th of October 2019. Now, we've held commemorations since 2014. Unfortunately, during COVID-19 in 2020 and 21, we were not able to hold those commemorations. We'll be holding a commemoration next Monday at midday on the 9th of October, which is Peter Norman Day. 
you're welcome to attend. The fact is, we can all be Peter Norman. There are many issues in life where we need a little bit of courage. We need to step out of our comfort zone. We need to stand up for those who need our support, whether it's public housing, whether it's First Nations struggles, whether it's asylum seekers, whether it's, um, you know, other, other aspects. It doesn't matter what it is. We need to stand up. And that's the lesson of Peter Norman Day. I will stand with you. Don't walk away. Don't turn your back when you see something that needs to be corrected. Come and join us. I will stand with you. It is a universal call for universal human rights. You've been listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program has been coming to you from the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. That's 3CR in Melbourne. My name's Joseph Toscano. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. That's 3cr.org.au. If you're wondering where the Peter Norman um, commemoration will be held, it'll be held at where the Peter Norman statue is, at Lakeside Stadium, 33AUGHTIE Drive, Albert Park, Melbourne, from midday to 1pm. That's on Monday, the 9th of October. You can ring on 0439 395 489. YouTube channels, public interest before corporate interest. JosephToscano.nam. Web pages, info at pibsy.net. That's info at public interest before corporate interests. You can send messages to anarchistage at yahoo.com. You can even write to us. Yes, we do answer all letters and we do still receive letters to Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. This program has been coming to you from the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. It has been broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. My name is Joseph Toscan. Have you got any complaints? Don't send them to me. Send them to Mr. Cat. Thank you once again for listening to The Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station. Don't forget to listen in next week. And if you do have an hour to spare, join us on Peter Norman Day at uh, Lakeside Oval, Lakeside Stadium in Melbourne at 33 A-U-G-H-T-I-E Drive, Albert Park at midday. We'll be gone by 1pm, so hopefully you'll be there at midday. Listen in to The Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station, courtesy of the Community Radio Network next week. Yes, the sacred cows have gone out of the studio. They're very happy with the program today. Listen in next week. And remember, complaints, Mr. Cat. That's who deals with complaints from the anarchist world this week. Evil minds that plot destruction. Sorcerer of death construction. An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World This Week, Australia's Sacred Cow Slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday, 
Listen to The Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. Oh, larger! CR is Radical Radio, and that means more than just alternative current affairs and political coverage. We're Radical because we're an independent media outlet, owned and operated by the community. We're Radical because we give communities the control of their own shows, with their own music, in their own languages. We're Radical because we provide a media platform for communities to build their own power to create social change. Become a subscriber and support Radical Radio. Call us on 03 9419 8377 or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward subscribe. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.